Well, good morning. Let us open God's Word to Acts 24. Acts 24. As we enter this chapter, we must remember a little bit of the context. Paul is about 100 miles north of Jerusalem in a province called Caesarea, which was under the jurisdiction of Governor Felix. Felix. You might remember Paul had just escaped a Jewish plot against his life and is now safe under Roman protective custody. By now, Felix had received a letter sent to him by the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, in which he explained why Paul had been taken to him to Caesarea and why he needed to hear his case. Having read the letter, Felix, the uh, governor, tells Paul that he will get a formal hearing once his accusers come from Jerusalem which was expected to happen at this point. And this brings up a point. This brings up a point. Paul's enemies were determined to do him harm at all costs. Have you noticed that? Relentless. They had plotted to kill him in Jerusalem. Now they will travel 100 miles north to Caesarea to ensure that Paul gets his punishment. So the question that comes up to mind right now is why all the hate against Paul? Why all this hate against Paul? Why not just dismiss Paul as crazy and just move on with their lives? Why pursue Paul to harm him with such intentionality and hatred? In fact, we can take the question even further. We can globalize the question. Why do we have the Lord Jesus himself telling his disciples that the world will do what? Hate them. Why the Lord Jesus tells the disciples that the world will hate them? I think the answer to that question lies to some extent, in the title of this sermon, which is just one word, convicted. So let me expand on that word just a little bit. In John chapter 7, verse 7, we hear the Lord Jesus say about himself that the world hates me, he said Jesus, the world hates me because I testify about it, about the world, that its works are evil. Jesus showed up to convict the world in order to save the world. And as a true human being, without sin, think about that, sinless, true human being, sinless, Jesus was in and of himself a rebuke to everyone around him. Here's a man who always did what was pleasing to God, no one around him could ever say that. The poor in spirit, sinners, were drawn to Jesus 
for they desperately wanted his forgiveness. While those who thought that they were righteous, what did they do? They hated Jesus. Why? You know why they hated Jesus? Those who thought they were righteous, they hated Jesus because Jesus showed them true, perfect, complete righteousness. His very presence among men created a level of conviction that they had never experienced before. His very person was a rebuke to this proud world. Hence, the hatred. But at one point, at one point in his ministry, the Lord Jesus said that he would send someone else. Remember that? He would send someone else. In John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, he said this, when he comes, he will do what? Convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will continue my work, said Jesus. He will continue my work, but on a global scale. On a global scale. He will take my word and my presence, which are holy and righteous, and he will bring conviction, but not just to a small group of people in Jerusalem. He will bring conviction to the whole world. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit will show the world that it is in the wrong. The Holy Spirit will show the world that the world is in the wrong. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit will show the world their sin. The Holy Spirit will show the world true righteousness. And the Holy Spirit will show the world coming judgment. How will the Spirit do this? Good question. Here's the bomb. Here's the bomb. The Holy Spirit will do this through his people. The church. You, Christian, are an instrument in the Spirit's hands through which the Spirit brings conviction to the world. The relevancy of Acts chapter 24 is that it shows us what this spirit-wrought conviction looks like. Now, let us work this out by looking through our passage. The first two points in your notes I will keep relatively short. We will dwell on point three a bit longer as this reveals the spirit's conviction in more direct ways through Paul's interaction with Felix. And it is all a matter of conscience. It is all a matter of conscience. In fact, the advance of the gospel in the world rides upon the shoulders of consciences clashing. And that's precisely what we see first. Here's the first point. What we see first is the persecutions of a persecuted conscience. The persecutions of a persecuted conscience. Let's read verses 1 through 9. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down you know, now to Caesarea, with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he, Paul, had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, 
And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made to, for this nation, in every way and in everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. Verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now, verse 7 is a variant in the Greek text, so some versions don't have it. Verse 8, by examining him, you yourself will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also join in the charge affirming that all these things were so. Now, the Jews are making their case against Paul by using an attorney, an attorney, which the text refers to as a spokesman, Tertullus. He was a trained legal representative that knew how to move the authorities in their favor. He knew what to say. And as you notice, he kept it really short, but to the point. The heart of his accusation against Paul had two components. Riots in verse 5 and temple defilement in verse 6. These were calculated statements meant to create the most amount of resonance within Felix's ears. As a governor, Felix hated riots. And as a pagan, Felix understood the idea of temples being profaned. Temples were important everywhere. Tertullus is hitting all the right notes, as you can see. He knew what he was doing. But of course, these things, these accusations were not so. Paul was not a rioter, nor was he a temple defiler. The Jews are twisting the truth simply because they hated Paul. And, and here again comes the question. Why all the hate? We know, for example, that the riots were created by the Jews, not by Paul. And the temple was never profaned by Paul. So how do we, how, what do we make of this? Well, I believe that at the heart of the problem is this. Paul is not only speaking about the new creation and a new kingdom in Christ Paul is also showing them a new creation and a new kingdom by the way he lives. By the way he lives. I believe Paul had become to the Jews what Jesus had become to them prior. Namely, a rebuke. That's what Paul was to the Jews. A rebuke. Paul is now speaking of and showing a kingdom in which the rule is love, you know it, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what else? Self-control. And these are things of which his accusers knew nothing about. Nothing about. 
They were supposed to be the rightful heirs to the kingdom of God, and yet Paul is showing them a kingdom very different from what they were expecting and wanting. He was rebuking them through life in the spirit. Why? Because they were captured in life in the flesh. They were captive to the flesh, and here they were seeing a man who was free from the flesh. And he was walking by a different set of rules. So I believe this. They were persecuting Paul because the Holy Spirit was persecuting them through the life of Paul. And so in view of their false accusations, Paul presents his third defense speech. And what this speech reveals is the power of a clear conscience. The power of a clear conscience. Let's read verses 10 through 23. And when the governor had nodded him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Here again goes Paul making a defense. Yet again. Verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up the crowds either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city, verse 13. Neither can they prove that to you what they now bring up against me, verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, that is Jesus, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, verse 15. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept. What is that hope? We have talked about this. That there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. So I always do what? Can you notice that in verse 16? I always do what? Take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. That's part of the reason why Paul eventually wanted to come to Jerusalem. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, though they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So remember, this is the case. It's been the case for a long time. The number one accusation or what Paul thinks is the heart of the issue is that he is proclaiming the resurrection of the dead and that's why he's on trial. But the heart of Paul's defense is simply this. I have a clear conscience. I have a clear conscience. I haven't done anything contrary to Jewish code of conduct nor do I believe anything contrary to Jewish doctrine. It is interesting because a clear conscience was really important for Paul. You know why? Because a clear conscience can stand against anything. A clear conscience can stand against anything. Now think about the little expression in verse 16. I always take pains. To have what? A clear conscience. Take pains. What in the world is that? Take pains can mean to labor or to strive. 
it seems to mean an exertion, an effort. Now, the question is, why speak of a clear conscience as something that requires pain? Why speak of a clear conscience as something that requires pain? Now, I cannot say this with a high degree of dogmatism because this expression is hardly found elsewhere in the New Testament. But it seems to me that Paul is saying the following. Keeping a clear conscience does come with a price. Keeping a clear conscience does come with a price. In this particular case, think about the testimony of Paul. Keeping a clear conscience with regard to the belief in the resurrection meant Paul's willingness to do what? To suffer at the hands of the Jews. Do you see that? So Paul is saying this, I would rather suffer for what I hold to be true regarding Jesus and the resurrection than to avoid all suffering and wound my own conscience. I would rather, said Paul, welcome persecution than to suppress my conscience. Think about how much pain Paul could have saved himself literally if he had just silenced his conscience and gone with the flow. But Paul walked by the Spirit, and he did not seek to gratify the desires of the what? The flesh. The flesh, brothers and sisters. The flesh will always tell you that when it comes to truth and love, just keep it to yourself. Avoid yourself. Spare yourself all the pain. Therefore, Paul walked with a clear conscience both in practice and in doctrine. As far as practice, we know Paul never violated any temple rules. What about doctrine? Well, as far as doctrine, he simply believed that Israel's hope of resurrection had come true in Jesus, the Messiah. Was resurrection the Jewish hope? Yes, indeed. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, which was a very well-known Old Testament passage, especially during the first century Judaism, and a critical one when it comes to explaining Israel's future hope, says this very clearly. Consider Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So as Paul stands before his accusers and Felix, he says, I am not inventing a new doctrine. Israel's hope has always been about the resurrection both of the just and the unjust. And all I'm saying, says Paul, is that in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who died and rose again, this hope has become materialized. And that's precisely what he says in verse 15. Therefore, Paul, for Paul to compromise his conviction regarding Jesus and the resurrection was to suppress his conscience, and that he was not willing to do. He was not willing to suppress his own conscience, even if it came at a great, great cost. So the question for us, briefly, is are we willing to stand on trial and be judged by the world for the hope that we have in Jesus 
his death and resurrection. If we live according to this hope in the here and now, will we accept the consequences, whatever they might be? In other words, is walking by the Spirit worth persecutions, accusations? Is living as a member of the kingdom of God, empowered by the Spirit of holiness, worth being called names and being mocked and being rejected by the world? For Paul, it certainly was. He walked by the Spirit in newness of life, which brought conviction to his enemies. Paul was now living by a different set of rules, and they noticed it. They were convicted. It is also worth noticing, brothers and sisters, that Paul did not apologize for the false accusations thrown against him. He did not admit to any wrongdoing, because admitting to wrongdoing when you haven't done any wrongdoing is itself wrong, as Sam was reminding us this morning during Sunday school. Being spirit-filled poor in spirit and meek does not mean that you must accept everything said about you that is false as if that were somehow the humble thing to do. If a defense is called for, then defending yourself of false accusations is not a sin. Paul is making this very, very clear. Paul wanted the truth to prevail. But Paul is an example to us because in his zeal for the truth, he did not compromise the fruit of the Spirit. Did you see that? In his zeal for the truth, he did not compromise the fruit of the Spirit. And that, my friends, is true meekness, which is not weakness, but zeal empowered by the Spirit of holiness. At this juncture, we're about to see a turn in the narrative, for Paul will have now a direct interaction with the governor of Caesarea, namely Felix. And that conversation will add even more weight to our theme of conviction, for it will show us how the Spirit does this through his own people. But before he and Paul talk, we read in the the passage that Felix dismisses the case temporarily. Why? Well, because Felix was troubled. He was troubled. Neither Claudius Lysias, the tribune, nor the Sanhedrin, nor Tertullus had been able to find any fault against Paul. To complicate matters even more in the narrative, Felix knew that keeping the Jews happy was highly important for political reasons given their influence. But under Roman law, he couldn't simply condemn Paul. So in verse 22 of our passage, we read that Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way or of Jesus, put them off saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Verse 23. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept, Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. In other words, Felix bought himself some time. That's all it is. He bought himself some time. He didn't care really for Paul, but he did care about keeping his political and social relationships in good standing. So putting Paul in prison was no big deal to him. Now, where did the knowledge of the way come for Felix? How did he know about Jesus? Most likely came through his wife, Drusilla, 
who was Jewish and probably had a very good handle on the issues related to Paul's case. But here's precisely where we begin to see the heart of the narrative opening out before our very eyes. For what we see next, if you're following the notes, is the alarm of a convicted conscience. The alarm of a convicted conscience. Verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, pay attention between the, in the, um, how they relate, verse 24 and 25. He sent for Paul to hear him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, does that sound familiar? And as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was what? Alarmed. <laughs> Alarmed. And said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Very convenient. Very convenient. Paul's imprisonment, which thankfully was somewhat mild, ended up lasting two years. Two years. Now, during this time, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, paid Paul many visits. Some manuscripts indicate that it might have been Drusilla herself who instigated this dialogue. She wanted to know more about Paul. Whatever the case might be, Paul, Felix, and Drusilla, his wife, had plenty of interaction. And Paul, being a good Christian, he took this as an opportunity to do what he loved to do. And what was that? Speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But notice that verse 25 explains how Paul did this. Isn't it interesting? He shared about faith in Christ Jesus by reasoning with Felix and Drusilla about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. First of all, once again, does that sound familiar to you? Whose ministry is it to bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment? According to John 16, verse 8, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we read at the beginning. So why did Paul speak of faith in Christ Jesus by referring to righteousness, self-control, and judgment? Because Paul was a man filled with the Spirit. Paul was a man filled with the Spirit. And as a Spirit-filled man, he was the Spirit's instrument to bring conviction to the world, including a governor named Felix and his Jewish wife. History tells us that Felix... The man himself was not characterized by either righteousness or self-control. According to one New Testament historian, Felix was, quote, a callous, corrupt official who quickly ascended the political ladder due to his connections to Emperor Claudius. Felix's brother, a man named Pallas, was the emperor's right-hand man. So Felix was a favorite of the emperor. 
as a governor. Now, this left the door open for Felix to engage in very questionable and even flat-out wicked behavior to exercise his authority. For example, as one historical fact indicates, during his tenure as governor, Felix instigated the murder of a high priest. Moreover, Drusilla was his third wife, whom he basically stole from the man who should have been her rightful husband. That's Felix's resume. Felix was not a man of righteousness or self-control. Not surprisingly, upon hearing Paul's message of faith in Christ Jesus, what did he do? He didn't welcome it. He was alarmed, and he sent Paul away. Why? I think I know why. I think you do too. Here's Paul. Consider the, consider the scene for a moment. Here's Paul, a man battered by relentless persecution, beatings, and imprisonments, speaking to Felix about a different kingdom. A different type of kingdom. As far as Felix was concerned, righteousness was a moving target. Self-control was a foreign concept. And judgment was in the hands of the Romans. But here's Paul, an insignificant man. And he says and shows with his own life that Jesus' death and resurrection have initiated something new in the world, something Felix had never seen. A new kingdom which, unlike the kingdoms of this world, have nothing to do with what Felix anticipated. And so Felix was alarmed. Through Paul's words and testimony, the Spirit brought conviction to Felix. The Spirit proved Felix in the wrong. In fact, we could say that Paul, think about this, I love this. We could say that Paul held Governor Felix accountable to Jesus. Don't you love that? Paul. Paul, an insignificant man, is holding a governor of Rome accountable to Jesus. If I could paraphrase Paul, I would say the conversation went something like this. Governor Felix, you may think you can get away with the life you have lived, but this is not so. You must repent of your unrighteousness and your lack of self-control, for judgment is in the hands of Christ Jesus in whom you must believe. In other words, Mr. Governor, with all due respect, you are supposed to exercise your authority as a man under authority, the authority of Jesus in the Spirit. Or to put it differently still, Mr. Governor, there's a new kingdom in town. Much, much, much greater than yours. What did Felix do? Well, sadly, he would have none of it. And so rather than listening any further, he simply dismissed Paul and sent him away. Instead of repenting, he sought to get some personal benefit from Paul 
And so let me briefly show you the last thing we see here, which is the deeds of a seared conscience. The deeds of a seared conscience. Verse 26 and 27. At that time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. Here it is again. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Very kind of him, right? Instead of bowing the knee to Jesus, Felix held on to his fleshly desires and sought a bribe from Paul. We don't know if Paul knew this or not, but it didn't seem to matter. For Paul took every chance he was given to speak with Felix about faith in Christ Jesus. After two years of trying, Felix realized something about Paul. He was unbreakable. Paul was unbreakable. He was a man truly living by a different set of rules. Something otherworldly. What do we call that? We call it simply life in the spirit. Life in the spirit. In light of this, Felix left Paul in prison just to show sympathy with the Jews. Clearly not a very just ruler. Eventually, the Bible says Felix was replaced by another man, Portius Festus. Under his supervision, the narrative will take yet another wild turn in which we will continue to see the sovereignty of Jesus in full display. We'll get there next time. Let me leave you with one general lesson we can draw from this passage. One general lesson. Here's the lesson if you're following the notes. The church, the church, and I'm not speaking about just the local church. You, you understand what I'm saying, right? The church, the people of God, is a new, what? Can anybody guess? I saw you, Kara. New creation, very, very close, but I would say this, new humanity. The church is a new humanity. Created in Christ Jesus for good works and empowered by the Spirit to walk in newness of life, which brings conviction to the world. Just in case I wasn't clear, it is the very newness of life which brings conviction to the world. This is what Paul meant when he said in 2 Timothy 3.12, for all who seek to live a godly life will what? Will be persecuted. Is it because if you're living a godly life, you want to annoy everybody? And No, no. If you're living a godly life in this world, you will create conviction. This is also what Peter meant when he said that when it comes to sensuality, Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, non-believers are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Why do they malign you if you don't join non-believers in what they do? Because it creates conviction. This is the conviction of the Spirit brought about by the people of the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit. 
I thought of a good friend of mine I had during my time in Georgia. I remember witnessing how soon after he became a Christian, his very brothers began to dislike him. Do you remember? They began to dislike him because he disrupted home life dynamics. Most of them were married men, but living virtually as single men because their wives were back in Mexico. And they loved it. They loved their newfound freedom in the U.S. And for a long time, I remember my friend would be just like them until the Spirit transformed him, made him anew. Very suddenly, my friend no longer joined his brothers in their debauchery, in their inappropriate talks, in their silly forms of entertainment, in their immorality, etc., and they resented him for it. I remember seeing this with my own eyes. They called him names. They mocked him. They eventually started to avoid him altogether. And I remember how we would spend hours with him, hours just talking about how difficult life was because of this, but how it all made sense to him. My friend became a living, breathing rebuke to his unrepentant brothers, and they resented him for it. Kingdom living begins with us, brothers and sisters. Kingdom living begins with us. So we are the ones who must put to death gossip and slander and immorality and anger, and lust, and selfishness, and idolatry, etc., etc. We must show the world that we are living under a different set of rules. That we can love those who hate us. That we can forgive those who offend us. That we can care for those who need us. That very testimony is the Spirit's power to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So what is the church? The church is the visible expression of the power of the kingdom of God because Christians are no longer ruled by the passions of the flesh but are now producing the fruit of the Spirit. It is a new humanity inaugurated in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Fathers no longer parent their children in anger, but in patience and compassion and love. Husbands no longer treat their wives harshly, but in love following the example of Christ and his church. Men in general are no longer to be known by their machismo, but by their unashamed willingness to lift holy hands in prayer. Women are no longer craving the attention that their makeup, hair, and dress can bring them, but are submissive, gentle, and examples of godliness. Children are no longer unruly and resentful of parents, but are obedient to them in the Lord. In short, what I'm saying, this is a new kingdom. It's a new kingdom. God's kingdom. And it is ruled by love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Or as Paul himself said in Romans 14, verse 17, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in 
the Holy Spirit. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this reminder that we are who we are today, not because we have been able to do so or because we are different, but because you have called us to yourself and you have given us of your Holy Spirit. So we celebrate your grace, your power, your goodness in our lives, and we pray that as we live life in this world, we will be faithful representatives of Christ Jesus, not by our own power, but by the power of the Spirit. So thank you for showing us these things in the life of Paul and help us to be more like Christ one day at a time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.